This is an ABC podcast. This is a warning that today's episode contains descriptions of gender-based violence and sexual assault that may be distressing. So many times, numerous times, I would run to Waigani Police Station, Boroko Police Station. They would just tell me, sorry, we can't help you. It's domestic affairs. We can interfere. And I'm like, life is at stake. Why can't you help? The biggest victims of violence are women and children and the perpetrators are men. So the people that can fix this are men. All of these developments that happen in, uh, in the country gives me that hope that we can still uh, work towards eliminating, addressing violence in our country. A woman is beaten every 30 seconds in Papua New Guinea. And more than one and a half million people experience gender-based violence in the country each year. With these horrific statistics, is it time to shine the spotlight in a different direction? I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about it being time for men in PNG to stop the violence. Pacific leads the world when it comes to gender-based violence, where almost two-thirds of women and girls experience violence at the ends of a family member or intimate partner. And in Papua New Guinea, the statistics are even more shocking. More than half the female population has been raped, and in the highlands, the rate of domestic violence sits close to 100%. One of those victim survivors is Lydia. Lydia was a young university student when she met her husband. She was fresh out of mission school and headed straight to the University of Papua New Guinea. I'm not sure if I, I, whether I fell in love with him or I just went with the flow, I don't know. But in retrospect, before long I realized that I was in a very toxic relationship and I didn't know how to get myself out. So when did the abuse start? It started when I, I fell pregnant. I told him that I was pregnant, and the, his response was, that's not mine. I'm like, I was a virgin when I stayed with you, and I'm still, I'm still with you. I don't know who else would I be going out with. I live with you. So where, where did that come from? Later on, I, I, I worked it out that when someone say things like that, you, you are not the wise side. They're, they're also having another beside you. And I didn't know that. And I, I, I'm so innocent. I was a young girl, not, not having exp, no have experience uh, with life. He was the first one that I experienced life with. And so he, he blindsided me. Was it verbal and emotional abuse to begin with? It was both. Putting me down. I can't be in the library for a, a longer p- a period of time. That's controlling, that's an abuse. Um, and, you know, screaming at me, shouting at me, and physical abuse. Physical abuse, he used to do it just secretly in the house. But then, once I had uh, two kids, he started abusing me publicly. At some, uh, in, in many occasions, he tore my clothes publicly. You know, for those from PNG listening, in Barocco or um, along the 
the road going to the university and yeah, anywhere that the public would see me. Wow. And how easy was it for him to bring that abuse out of the shadows and do it in front of others? I don't know. I still ask myself that. I mean, not, not now when I was going through it. And I often say, um, can you tell me the problem? Why are you angry? I, I never could fathom any reason why he would hit me or he would burn me or he would um, be angry. And, and, and I, can't, I can't really ask him, like, what are you angry about? Can I know? So I don't have to do it in, um, again. He that burnt you be- as well? Yeah, he did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And what caused me to walk away was when he burned me with, uh, in the past, he would just uh, put a soldering iron on my body and, you know, put it then until the smoke would come out. And then the, and the reason why I walked away and I uh, went to court was he nearly killed me by pouring boiling water on top of me. Yeah. On my on my head, so I lost all my head. I lost all my, you know, what we have on around our head, and I, uh, there were uh, the residue of that went along my neck and on my shoulders, and all that all that um, uh, flesh was just bare. And I was always um, had to try to keep flies away around my head and around my my chest and my shoulders. It was a very traumatic experience. It was the hardest of all. If um, kicking me or uh, punching me, or if, if it was not enough, that was the catalyst for me to call it quits. So it's physical, emotional, financial. I earn more than him. I never see the, my money. I was prohibited from sending even $20 to my parents. And that was the hardest. It put a dagger into my heart because I am their investment. I am at the university because they sacrifice. And to not, you know, give back was the all the ultimate injustice. Yeah. And uh, describing what you were going through and what it did to you in public, did anybody ever come to your defense? In the past, uh, the the saying. Uh, it's domestic matter. It's domestic matter. So many times, numerous times, I would run to Waigani police station, Boroko police station. They would uh, just tell me, sorry, we can't help you. It's domestic, uh, it's a domestic, uh, sorry, uh, domestic affairs. We can't interfere. And I'm like, life is at stake. Why can't you help? In the end, you get tired because you will, you will have just wasted your time you know, getting a, a bus or walking there. And I walked there many, many times, countless times, seeking help. And always, in all those times, sent back to the very environment that it would perpetuate itself. So there was never, never, never any help. Now, situation has changed, I hear. How did you actually leave? I, I think my source of comfort and my source of uh, strength was praying and staying positive about the next day or the next hour 
and shutting my mouth up, lying low, doing exactly what he requires you to do, he required you to do. I walked close to bought with no questions. I stopped sewing. I stopped baking. I still cooked. And I can't walk with anyone. I have to walk with him to work, to home. Yeah, I lost completely my life and my identity. I lived in the 12 years. I lived as he wanted me to live. No questions about it. And I have no voice. I had no voice in the 12 years. I lost myself and I lost my voice. I lost, I lost that everything that defines who Lydia was at that time. Your emotional strength to live such a, you know, such a situation is just incredible, Lydia. Yeah, and a lot of forgiveness. I mm. forgive myself and I also forgive him. I was on a podcast with someone and I, I said to her um, that, because she argues that her perspective is that uh, when people say you forgive your perpetrator, um, you, are, you, are, you, are, you are letting them off the hook. And I'm like, no, it's for my own healing. If I don't forgive him, I'm still indebted to him. He's still in control of my emotions. I've got to forgive him and let him go. Let that path go. Because I want to live my now for tomorrow. My tomorrow depends on where I am now emotionally, spiritually, and physically. That's powerful, but, Lydia. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow doesn't just appear. You work it today. Yeah. Lydia, let's go back to when you decided to leave. What about logistically? Where did you go and how did you afford to get away from him? Uh, after I was discharged from the first Goroka Hospital, I went straight to the police. I went to the police with all my injuries. And by then, the university heard that I was at the hospital and they were expecting me to go back to the campus to tell them what that my decision would be. So when I was in the hospital, I already knew that uh, when I get out, that would be the end. And so I enlisted the, there is a, oftentimes at any university, we have building department. So I, I called from the hospital, I called the, the registrar, the academic registrar. I said that I will need an accommodation uh, for me and my, ch my two children. And I will need the housing department to go to the house and get our stuff out and put it in the house that you are going to allocate to me. I'm still in the hospital and I was talking to him. And they did that. So when I came out, I got a affidavit, I, uh, not an affidavit, I, I uh, reported the matter to the police and, and I also uh, asked them to re-register the case in court so that I can go um, to court and uh, face him. And I am applying for dissolution of marriage and legal custody of my two children. All that I did. And so that was the reason why we ended up in court. 
Lydia was deputy registrar at the university at the time, and I'm relieved she was finally able to get support. She's now happily married to her second husband, and they live in Australia. You'll hear from her again. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. Two out of three women in Papua New Guinea have experienced some level of abuse, including domestic violence or sexual abuse. You're in a room and there's, there's three women. Well, you sort of start thinking, which is the lucky one that hasn't been. <laughs> mm. I've experienced any of this kind of, you know, any of this kind of stuff. So you, immediately I was standing with a group of PNG women and my whole thinking and approach to it flipped. Tanya Nugent is a well-known journalist, and it was this moment when she started her journey as a staunch advocate to stop violence against women. It just hit me that actually you're in the majority of PNG women. And I just thought, is it so normal or what's the reason why we don't talk about this thing? People keep it silent and allow it to fester. And I think that was that was about a decade ago now, and I really think that it's changed. Once you start talking about it, somebody else will start talking about it. You kind of like release the you you release the floodgates almost. What has it made us um, yes. made us start talking about it? Do you think? Honestly, I think social media has made a huge difference to the to this conversation. I remember. I think there was the national house cry that they had quite a few years ago now. It was all around that time, the, the Leniata um, Kapari incident with the... Um, oh, the, the mother and her daughter horrible, were burned. The, the, mother, the mother who was burned over a stack of rubber tyres in wide open public place in Mount Hagen, Leniata Kapari. Because of social media, the images for that came out. Mm. And because of that, we started talking because of the graphic nature of this incident and because there were photos of it and it was just being spread like wildfire on social media, um, it was easy for everybody to be outraged at this. It was easy for men to buy into it. It was easy. It wasn't, you know, your stock standard, the husband gives the wife a black eye once a week kind of situation. It was really shocking. But the once-a-week black eye situation still goes on, you know, not quietly. People have, you know, accepted that as their lot in life in many cases. Even though social media has given women courage to speak out and take legal action, Tanya says the wheels of the justice system are incredibly slow. I would have given up a long time ago because the slow process of the system and the the way the courts are compromised. I don't want to get in trouble for criticising the judiciary, but honestly... There are some people, you know, personal biases that do come into these decisions. And when we talk about gender-based uh, violence, how, how can how, how does domestic violence fit into this? Domestic violence is violence perpetrated in the home, and it's typically the term used to describe husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm. You know, this is the thing. There's so many different terms, but then there's also the term intimate partner violence. So that can be boyfriend and girlfriend. You know, whether you're high school students, I mean, we have problems with high school boys belting their wives and uni students belting their wives, girlfriends, sorry, not wives. And then gender-based violence. Gender-based violence is really used to say violence against women. These violent acts that are perpetrated in our society from one citizen on another, these are all crimes. But for some reason, when it comes into the space of a husband and his wife, 
it's not looked at anymore as a crime. It's not viewed culturally as a crime. It's viewed as the right of the husband, you know, to do what he wants to his wife. And honestly, some of these guys that I think know very well that, you know, that's an old-fashioned way of thinking and every individual has their human right, but they like to perpetuate it. It's easier to perpetuate that than to look deep into themselves and to try and fix their problem. Mm. It's a lot harder to tackle this issue and to raise boys that solve problems, you know, in yeah, other ways, not, not with their fists. Sometimes it's generational. They've seen it being done and they carry on that. You know, oh, the- very much so. Most women who are you know, in a violent relationship now is because their fathers maybe were violent to their mothers. It's quite, it's, I mean, this is the very, very, very common story. So, so they grow up thinking that that's okay. how a man is supposed to be in a relationship with his wife. Mm. And and the same for the boys. You know, they think I am allowed to do this. You know, I have had many conversations with women who are in, you know, in a violent home and their husbands are belting them and they try to stay together for the, for the sake of the children. You know, the first thing I'll say after they're sharing this story is, oh, where are the children when all of this is going on? Nine times out of ten, right there present witnessing all of it. And then I say, say to them, well, that's actually really damaging for your children to go through. Once they wake up, that actually staying in this violent situation is very damaging. It's going to have lifelong effects on your children. It's amazing how quickly they'll move. You know, <laughs> they'll get mm. out of their marriage. Mm. What you're showing your children is courage and bravery. Mm. You're showing your daughters physically with your action. When a man treats you like this, you walk away. I think if we, we if we could get that message through of the long term impact on the children and how we're perpetuating this to the next generation then, you know, we'll start to see a lot more women taking action. So what other ways can we fix this? The biggest victims of violence are women and children and the perpetrators are men. So the people that can fix this are men. Papua New Guinea has a parliament full of men. Until recently, we only had men, all men. We've got this special parliamentary committee on gender-based violence, they're calling it. I think all of all of PNG was so excited when this was set up and they had a an amazing two or three day forum and we could watch it all on social media. It was streamed and they got to the bottom of everything. Many of us sitting there with 90% of what was discussed, we already knew, but it was really um, exciting to see this information finally landing in the ears of you know people that might be able to do something about it. A lot of money is spent on organizing these things where we get together and talk and nothing seems to come out of it. I could see the frustration of those men as well because I can see that their intentions are to, you know, they really want to get things moving. But it, when, when it comes to actually allocating the funding to getting it done, that's where we get stuck. Tanya, what sort of hope do you have for the future of our young girls and women in Papua New Guinea? Oh, I'm always hopeful. You know, we've got two women in parliament now and they're both not shy in talking out, speaking out. So that's better than zero. Mm. Um, I think also women are becoming more and more empowered, even though we don't have that representation yep. in, the, in the ultimate decision-making space. Women are, you know, really dominating in the corporate sector in PNG and also in terms of gender in senior positions in um, public service as well. If you're more financially independent, you're removing that structure of, you know, where a lot of women will stay in, a, in an unhappy situation or are less empowered to remove themselves 
whenever we talk about domestic violence and it's all women sitting around, we only have so much power. We don't have the power to stop. We can try and raise good sons. Yes, we have that power. But I always say violence against women is a male issue, not a female issue. Tanya Nugent, journalist and anti-violence activist. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. Uh, we've seen over 3,500 cases now. There's includes uh, cases of uh, intimate partner violence, um, sexual violence outside of intimate partner violence, child abuse cases, social accusation-related violence. Denka Ilave is operations manager at Family PNG Inlay. And that's how many cases they've seen in their nine years of operation. In May 2021, a special parliamentary committee on gender-based violence convened a three-day inquiry to investigate measures to prevent violence against women and girls. Denka spoke passionately of the challenges facing survivors and the need for justice to be applied equally to perpetrators, regardless of their profile or status. That was just one of a number of recommendations she made. Family support centers that need to be supported, and these are very essential services. Medical service is a priority because, you know, unwanted pregnancy, SPI, all of that that comes. Of course, physical injuries that need to be treated um, if injuries are sustained in the violence. And then our police offices need to be resourced. There are a lot of times social media or individuals ONGOs like us do uh, criticize the police for not doing their work, but also working closely with them. I've also noticed that some of our police units and speaking across all sectors, the courts, district courts, public solicitors, public prosecutors, welfare, they need to be resourced. You know, when you have given the support that the service providers need, then you can hold them accountable why they are not providing what they are expected to provide. That same year, the PNG government allocated 39.7 million kina to address gender-based violence. And Denka says there's been some movement. As we can see, the development in terms of the Lookout in Bikini Act that's been also enacted, also the Family Protection a lot of FSVU set up uh, across the provinces as well. Uh, they are also decentralizing, speaking for lay, they are also decentralizing into the districts. Even within lay, uh, they are also decentralizing the family sexual violence units into the suburban police stations. So it's not just one police station that station that women or girls or men who are survivors are reporting too, but they have, you know, quite a number of options there or reporting to the nearest facility. You have the family support center that are also established across the provinces as well. There may be just one or two provinces that need to establish. But for me, what's important in terms of government progress is making services accessible for survivors. From your work, Denga, you try to reach out to rural communities and you were doing that last week you, when, we, when we talked. But people, you said, were not aware of uh, services available to them. Could you explain why this is so? A lot of our people still in PNG live in the villages. 
and uh, many of the services that are provided, most of the services are still uh, established within the cities or the main towns of the provinces. So for our rural people, they need more awareness, more awareness about the abuse, the types of abuse and the impacts of abuse on, uh, on their life, their children, their community, uh, as well as making them aware of the services available if they are also being abused. It also serves as uh, prevention when they know they can prevent or if they are already perpetrating others, they can change their behavior. And if they are being abused, at least they have information and they can reach out for help. How hopeful are you that gender-based violence will be addressed in a way that sees it truly reduced so that women and girls don't have to go through this? If I don't have that hope, then why would I continue to do the work that I do with Family PNG and the rest of the service providers? And um, when we started in 2014, there were not many support. There were not many organizations out there in the local villages or districts doing this work. But now there are a lot of interest in the communities. Churches are also doing work as well. The government is also doing you know, all of these developments that happen in, uh, in the country gives me that hope that we can still uh, work towards eliminating, addressing violence in our country. Thank you, Ilave, from the lay branch of Family PNG. And it is heartening to hear she will never give up hope. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. You heard from Lydia earlier in the program talking about her horrific experience at the hands of her first husband. Now she spends her time advocating for women who've experienced violence. I asked her what she thought of fellow advocate Tanya Nugent's message that this is a man's problem that needs to be addressed by men if anything is going to change. I've been thinking a lot and meditating a lot about what what we can be doing different because the same, same, same uh, pathways is not really working for us. Uh, it is true what the question you pose, because until and unless men step up and collaborate with women in dealing with abuse, it will continue because it is a way of, it's, it's almost like war, women against men, but it's not. We are trying to put this issue, you know, in the public sphere so that everyone can be aware of it. And if it's happening in the, in the streets or men step up, men up and say, that's not right. This is not on. Thank you so much to my guests, Lydia, Tanya Nugent and Denga Ilave. If you are in immediate danger, please call the police. And you can also access support from these organizations. One talk counseling help him line, the number is 7150-8000. The Mary Safe line also links you to 24-hour emergency transport to police and a safe house in Port Mosby. The number is 7222-1234. You can also get in touch with your local police or church. 
Thank you so much for joining me. Hilda Wayne for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia, a weekly show by Pacific Islands Women for Pacific Islands Women, where we get together to talk about the issues that are important to us. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. In the Pacific, just search for Sisters Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Australia, you can listen to Sisters Let's Talk on the ABC Listen app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. That is S-I-S-T-A-S at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, how do you balance your obligations to your culture and community with being a modern woman in the Pacific? We are the caretakers of the land. Even when that land might be mined or dug up or destroyed or somebody's taken all the trees, you know, which is what also happened on Banaba, we, you, if you, in order to fill, fill your role as a Pacific woman, or in my case, as a Banaban woman, I have to continue to care for that land, even when it's gone. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunsner. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. And that's all, I'll bring you next time.